Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Joe McCormick, and we've got a big old mailbag for you today. Rob, you cool if I jump right in on this uh, pair of messages, starting with the one from Tabitha about mirrors and furry fish. Go for it. Okay, so the subject line here, mirror hallucinations and mustachioed fish. Uh, To refresh on the mirror subject, I think this is connecting to a study we talked about in our mirror series about people with uh, otherwise typical psychological histories pretty easily experiencing hallucinations just from prolonged mirror staring, just looking at their own face in a mirror uh, for 10 minutes or so in low light. And so Tabitha writes, Hi, Robert and Joe, writing in with another mirror anecdote, though I'm sure you're sick of these by now. The only hallucination I've ever had was mirror-based. I was finishing up my master's thesis, very stressed and very sleep-deprived, and binge-watching Hannibal, which is a beautiful TV show, but not particularly good for mental health. One stressful day, I was washing my hands in the bathroom, I looked up, and my reflection in the mirror was a different person. It looked like me, it had my face, but I had a deep impression that there was a different intelligence looking back at me, and it was not impressed. The moment passed pretty quickly, but it shook me up. I had a fear of looking at mirrors in the dark when I was a child, so I think this episode was just something swimming up from my deep psyche to freak me out at a time of trouble. Uh, To this day, I have not finished watching Hannibal. (laughs) And then on a different subject, I enjoyed your furry fish episodes, and I wondered if you've thought about doing an episode on catfish and catfish mythology. Their improbable size, mud-lurking sneakiness, and fabulous mustaches seem ripe for some fun stories. I know of the giant earthquake-causing catfish of Japanese myth, have heard tales of the Wells catfish. Uh, I'm not sure what that is. Maybe Welsh? Maybe Welsh. I'm not sure. Uh, Catfish eating people and pets on a regular basis across Europe, and I'm sure there's much more. Enjoying the podcast as always. You guys brighten my day on a regular basis. Regards, Tabitha. Um, so as for that uh, that that Japanese myth, this is a cool one if you don't know it. There's a creature I think called uh, Namazu or Onamazu who is a a giant catfish who is believed to swim around in, in like caverns or lakes under the ground, I think. And then when there are earthquakes, it's it's said that this is because the fish is swimming. Oh, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, as for, as for not finishing Hannibal, uh, I can definitely uh, relate to that. Uh, I, I really liked the show. I thought it was very visual. Uh, but yeah, certainly uh, uh, maybe not the kind of thing you want to binge. And uh, at some point, maybe I'll pick it back up and finish it. But for now, I feel like I, I'm my belly is full. Yeah, I, I started watching it one time. I, I watched a couple of episodes, but I never got very far in. Um, maybe I'll go back to it someday. Oh, but maybe... So Tabitha actually sent us a couple of messages. Maybe I'm going to move right on to this next one that she sent in response to the Vault episode about fingernails. All right, let's do it. Tabitha says, Hi, Robert and Joe. Just listened to the Vault episode Fingernails 2, and I found myself trying not to scream into my headphones that worms love hair. 
<laughs> I think somehow this does connect to the subject matter. So uh, she says, I loved your analysis of the symbolic and mythological roots of hair and nail disposal. I can't help but think that all of the hair and nail connection to fertility and plant growth might stem from the fact that earthworms and other decomposers love to eat keratin. It's a great source of protein for them. It takes them a while to munch through it, but earthworms dramatically increase soil health and available nutrients for plants. So, if you bury your hair and nails, you will get boosted plant growth in that area. Interesting. Well, that makes me feel good about putting all that cat hair back in the uh, in the garden, which uh, I've never scientifically verified to see if that actually helps keep uh, creatures out of the garden. But I'm like, I have all this cat hair. It needs to go somewhere. It might as well be the garden. Well, this is what she says. Uh, so uh, Tabitha says, anecdotally, I have a worm bin, which I have kept covered with some thick, untreated wool felt mats. The worms have been happily munching through the base of the mats for the last six months or so, despite the coating of lanolin. Uh, I often find a worm has twined itself completely through the felt in its travels. And then finally, she says, this is the second email I've sent you in a week or so. Sorry for the spam, but I'm doing very boring work at the moment. Cheers, Tabitha. <laughs> no, keep them coming. We're always happy to hear from, from our listeners. Totally. All right. Speaking of nails, here's another one. Um, and, and did we say, I think the reason for this is because there was uh, a vault episode. Yeah, we, that's right. We re-ran yeah. the nails episode. That's why everyone's writing in about this. Um, uh, Pablo writes in and says, Hi, Joe and Robert. My name is Pablo. I'm a listener from Spain, and I love your podcast because they are really interesting. And for me, it's a wonderful way to practice and learn English. Anyways, the other day I listened to the podcast From the Vault, Fingernails. I was really excited because nails are extremely important for me. I spend a lot of time trimming, polishing, and taking care of them. But you didn't mention why nails are so important for a lot of people like myself. I work as a music teacher and play Spanish guitar. Maybe you don't know that we, classical guitarists, play the strings with our nails, and they have to be perfectly shaped to get the nice sound. I used to have a big problem with the thickness and fragility of my nails. In fact, some amazing guitar player confessed that he had once had to cancel an important concert because he broke a fingernail, but he said that he had the flu because the real reason was a bit embarrassing. Fortunately for me, I lately learned how to build artificial nails using some gels and a UV lamp. Nowadays, the vast majority of electric guitar players exchange their fingernails for the plastic ones, or change their fingernails for the plastic one, uh, those that we call picks. Uh, thank you so much for your podcasts. I'm really happy listening to you. Kind regards, Pablo. Oh, yeah, Pablo. So I, um, I play guitar, though. I've never played... Uh classical guitar or Spanish guitar, but I had a friend in, in high school who played uh, classical guitar and he had like a, like a long, well, well cared for thumbnail for picking those strings. I gotta say, I, I've never played those guitars, but uh, I play, you know, uh, electric and acoustic guitar and I often don't use a pick. I often just use my fingernails, but not uh, by plucking with long fingernails. I keep them pretty short. I just sort of like hit with the back of my fingernail as if my, the tip of my finger was a pick. Oh, I thought you were going to say, like, really dig in there. Just just really dig in with the, with the short nail. No, no, no. It takes more finesse. Though I use a pick sometimes, too. Yeah. I, I will, uh, I'll go, uh, go cyborg. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't, I never really, I'm not really a guitar person, don't know much about them, so I, I, had, I didn't really think about that. And I never had, I had not really thought about the fact that a guitar pick is this kind of replacement for the fingernail, a stand-in for the fingernail. But that's, that's fascinating. 
there are different variations too. Usually, if, you, if you're playing electric or acoustic guitar, people tend to use a just a single flat pick that you hold between your thumb and your index finger. But like uh, people playing the banjo often have a, a thumb pick that's like a ring that sticks on the end of their thumb that they use for strumming or plucking the lower strings on the banjo. Oh, okay. What I have never seen but would like to is somebody who uh, who does a finger-picking guitar style, but they do it with, like, full hand, all five fingers, finger armor. You know those mm. things? Like, the yeah. full finger ring with, like, a often have kind of a claw tip or something. Oh, yeah. I mean, it seems like somebody would have done that, right? Because It's got to be a metal band where somebody yeah, does that. Some- some sort of uh, crazy jewelry right there is seems right up the right up the the rock star guitarist Sally. Okay, this next message comes to us from Matt. Matt says, uh, also about fingernails. Matt says, "Hello, Robert and Joe. You mentioned in your fingernails episode that many young people with a habit of nail biting do grow out of it. I was one such person." From as young as I can remember, I had always bitten my nails, and never, not once, did I ever have to cut them. I did not choose to bite them, I just couldn't help it. My mum bought me bad-tasting clear coating to deter me, but it didn't help. But one day, in my mid-twenties, I noticed that my nails were long, and I had to cut them. Twenty years later, I have not bitten them again. I would like to hear from other listeners who have also outgrown this habit. I'm very curious if it ended suddenly like mine did or if it might end in other ways. Love the show. Thanks for all you do. Matt. Um, I thought this was interesting because uh, it it makes me think of the broader phenomenon of um, just like when there is a major change in our in, in our habits or, or patterns of mind and we have no idea why. It just seems to come out of nowhere. Yeah, yeah just sort of changes and sometimes it's hard to put a finger on exactly what happened i i think the closest thing that i have to this in my own case is uh you know i've been through periods of my life where i i have like uh sort of heightened generalized anxiety that that is present and then other periods where i don't no identifiable reason that i can figure out like what causes a transition from one to the other can't can't in any way lock it into events going on in my life is just like you know this is this is what my brain's doing at one point and then one day it just stops yeah uh weirdly enough i i i feel much the same i feel like i i've spent some time trying to to chart those periods in my life with things going on in my life and the the topographies don't necessarily match up so it's it's weird how that plays out but indeed, if there's anyone out there who has some uh, some feedback on nail biting, like how it stopped, when it stopped, uh, yeah, go go it, go ahead and write in and let us know. We'll share it with Matt and the uh, rest of the listeners. We got to do these shows once a week, folks. So yeah, I'm happy to to have these uh, these continuing conversations. All right, our next bit of listener mail comes to us from Nick. Uh, And this is in uh, response to our episode or episodes on the furry fish. Hello, Robert and Joe, longtime listener, first time, et cetera, et cetera. All I could think about while listening to the Fish Have Fur episode was Jonathan Colton's song, Furry Old Lobsters. Originally written to help promote John Hodgman's book, Areas of My Expertise, the singer at first seems to be lamenting the loss of an old species of haired lobster. Only later in the song do we realize he is confusing the lobster with a completely different animal. If you haven't heard the song, you should definitely check it out. Nick. I don't know anything about this. Oh, no, no. This this, uh, So, yeah, this was uh, the audio book for uh, Areas of My Expertise by John Hodgman, uh, which... Uh, I, I, I definitely listened to this and enjoyed it quite a bit back in the day. And 
I actually saw uh, uh, Jonathan Colton in concert shortly thereafter. He played at a small venue here in our area. And uh, yeah, he's quite good. I, I feel like he's uh, he's quite a talented musician. Um, and, you know, he has some of these songs that maybe, you know, some people might think, oh, well, it's just kind of like gimmicky songs, little comedy songs. But I feel like mm-hmm. he's a, a really solid singer-songwriter. So uh, definitely worth checking out. And as for Hodgman, you know, obviously a uh, uh, talented and funny guy, but I still can't believe all those people he mutilated on the Nick. Ooh, rough stuff. Wait, who does he play on the Nick? Is he a historical figure or just a? Um, ooh, I can't. I can't remember just the character's name. Surgeon. He plays a character whose 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 answer. I think it's. Ba- I'm pretty sure it's based on a historic person, uh, if, if memory serves. Uh, but he plays a a quack doctor of the time who believes that the answer to any kind of mental issue is the removal of all teeth. And uh, and he, so he's he's removed multiple people's entire set of teeth to improve their uh, their their demeanor and their, uh, their 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 mental life, including the teeth of his children. Uh, so he's this. It's it's the best, in my opinion. It's the best uh, uh, acting role that I've seen John Hodgman in because he's he's uh, he's awful. He's awful in it. You just you're like, oh my god, this guy is completely nuts. One of these days, I'm going to have to watch that show. Uh, it's it's good. It's it's not necessarily for the faint of heart, but it's uh, it's good. And I think it's all on HBO. Uh, what is it? HBO Max these days? Yeah, yeah. Whatever. I think it's all it. been moved over to there because that was one of the problems when it came out. Uh, terrific show, but how many people were actually subscribing to Cinemax at the time in order to watch uh, a, a historic uh, medical drama? Uh, no, you know, I don't think many people were. Uh, so a lot of people missed it, but now it's all out there, and it's uh, easy to dive into it if you can get past like a, some rough stuff right at the, the top of the first episode. Mm. All right, this next message is about our episode on gears, gears in biology. So in this uh, episode about about gears in the biological world, we talked about the scarcity of examples of gears in animal bodies, but several listeners wrote in after this uh, episode to point out that actually if you zoom in far enough, not looking at macroscopic uh, you know, body structures, but if you zoom in all the way down to the molecular level, there are in fact tons of gears in biology. And so uh, an example of this type of message comes from Cody. Cody says, hi, Joe and Robert. In your gears episode, you mentioned that you couldn't find another biological example of toothed gears, but you've overlooked how ATP is synthesized in mitochondria. As a side note, ATP is uh, adenosine triphosphate. It is the, the sort of main energy source that powers the life of cells in, in the bodies of, uh, I think, basically all organisms. Uh, Cody goes on. This process involves uh, the use of a sort of Brownian ratchet mechanism that exploits the charge differential on either side of the mitochondrial membrane. There are more protons on one side of the membrane than the other because of a deliberate disequilibrium that the mitochondria produces for this purpose. And this causes the protons to want to flow through the membrane to establish charge balance. The membrane is periodically perforated with microtubules that have embedded in them a bona fide mechanical ratchet see pictures below rob you can look at the pictures that cody attached yep Uh, absolutely bona fide 
I, I would say this is bona fide. Yes. Uh, Cody says, uh, and the motion of the protons turns the ratchet, which is connected via a cam to the ATP synthase molecule, thus extracting energy from the voltage across the membrane via mechanical gear action to produce a highly energetic compound ATP. This process even leverages mechanical advantage as the ratchet through which the protons flow has several teeth, but the connected ratchet in the synthase molecule has only three teeth. Incidentally, many antibiotics target this system either by gumming up the gears, preventing protons from flowing through them, or permanently uncoupling the cam connecting the two ratchets. Since all of life on Earth relies on ATP to do literally anything, you could say, at a very basic level, we're all made of gears. <laughs> very cool contribution, Cody, uh, and others who wrote in on this subject. So, uh, so yeah, thank you. And, and folks at home, look up this gear. Yeah, I find this this area uh, you know, super fascinating, but also v- uh, very challenging to understand at times. I've uh, I've attended a couple of talks at the World Science Festival about um, the idea of constructing nanobots out of this sort of thing, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 it always blows my mind. But I'm also kind of like really kind of struggling to to understand like that smaller realm, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, with a lot of molecular biology, like I, I don't understand enough well enough to really make judgments about it on my own. I just got to take your word for it. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, we heard in, uh, from Jim in response to a recent artifact, or as it is for the months of September and October, the monster effect. Uh, Jim writes in and says, when I saw the title Satanic Rites of Drugula come up in the feed, I assumed the song was about an actual event or person like Slayer's Angel of Death or Celtic Frost's Into the Crypts of Rays. But you were talking about the actual song. Uh, Electric Wizard is one of my favorite bands and one of the few whose music I can actually, they can actually put me into another state, transporting me or whatever. I hope you saw them at the Tabernacle just before COVID hit. It was a great show and they played that song, which is actually one of my favorites, although they have a ton of great songs. I still can't believe you brought up Electric Wizard. You guys do have a very eclectic and varied podcast. Keep up the great work, Jim. Well, um, I, well, Joe is the, I guess, the, the OG uh, Electric Wizard fan uh, here. I, I, I was a latecomer to Electric Wizard, but have been listening to them a lot recently. You've had Wizard on the brain, I can tell. I have. The past, past month or so, it seems. Were you at this show? You've actually seen them live. Oh, yeah. Rachel and I went. Yeah. Oh, okay. It was heavy. <laughs> no, it was really good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, well, maybe maybe one day I'll get to see them after uh, uh, all, everything's a little saner out there. But uh, um, one, one thing that was really funny was uh, so of course it's you know it's a very uh, debauched heavy metal show. Uh, but I remember sitting near us in the balcony. There was like uh, uh, maybe like a twelve year old kid there, clearly with his dad. Like, <laughs> he, I think he really wanted to go to the show, and so his dad took him to Electric oh, Wizard. The young wizards. All yeah. right. I don't know. I thought it was sweet. Yeah, my, my son's not really at the point where he's much into any of the music that I play, but occasionally he'll say something. I think I was playing some Vangelis or Tangerine Dream, and he was like, hey, that's a nice song. And I was like, yeah, excellent. All right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, son, it is. <laughs> All right, let's do a little Weird House Cinema listener mail. This one comes to us from Frederick. Dear Master Podcasters, 
Robert Indigeno, thank you for your excellent work exploring the depths of the human experience. I'm sorry, it's always making me laugh because I know this is re- mostly regarding Weird House Cinema. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy every minute of it. I've considered writing a few times, for example, regarding uh, queuing phenomenon in Swedish versus German subways. Oh, I'd love to hear about that. Uh, oh, totally. But I felt you might have had enough waiting related correspondence already. No, no, no. Send it on. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, Frederick continues, I'm writing now, listening to the Weird House Cinema episode called Devil's Express, and it inspired me to write this email. It's not much of a question or a mark, rather a challenge. Here's the background story. I must have been somewhere between five and seven years old, and my parents had some guests over. I was minding my own business as I heard the adults call, directed at me, don't look at the TV. Smart. Smart. (laughs) As apparently something scary was shown. I was nowhere near the TV at the moment, so what does a child do in that situation? I obviously ran straight into the living room where the TV was on to see what not to look at. I remember seeing a scene out of what must have been a horror film. There was a woman sneaking around in an abandoned subway car. She sees someone and walks up to him. Scary soundtrack intensifies. The person turns around, and it's a skeleton. The vision of the scary skull with the empty eye sockets must have burnt itself into my innocent subconscious. As the scene did not only frighten me senseless back then, but it has popped up every now and then as a memory. Lastly, as you were talking about a demon in the subway in the aforementioned podcast. Oh, wow. I suspect that if I see it again, I can laugh at the silliness of it all and send myself some comfort. Uh, send some comfort back uh, through time to the child version of myself. But what was the movie? 80s-era horror movie with a woman sneaking around in an abandoned subway car frightened by a skeleton monster? If anyone on this earth would have an idea, I believe you guys are the ones to talk to, or indeed your audience. I can think of none uh, other better educated on the topic. Wishing you a wonderful weekend ahead. Bess, Frederick. This is really funny because it, the the dynamic you're describing reminds me of an experience that I had where there was a time when I was a child and I was flip, flipping TV channels and I came across some horrible movie on TV and it had this scene uh, of somebody like getting shot in the knees that really just shook me and like years later I'd still think of it and, and feel a chill and then uh but i never knew what the movie was until i started like going on the internet and and trying to like go to those those forums where you can like describe a movie scene you remember and people will try to help you figure out what movie it was i finally figured it out and it was the dumbest looking michael dudikoff action movie uh <laughs> and so so yeah i got to have that experience of looking back on the thing that terrified me and realizing it it, it is actually hilarious tripe <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I was fascinated by this question from Frederick, in part because I, I love subway movies. And if there's a subway mm-hmm. scene in a movie, I'm instantly a little more into it, even if the, the, the film is, is not that good. Um, and if you know, throw a skeleton man into the mix, and, and I'm definitely there. But uh, I, was, I was racking my, my brain here trying to, to think what it could be. And uh, I was thinking of, of Terror Train as one possibility. That's the Jamie Lee Curtis and that one does feature a number of masks, but I don't think there's a skeleton mask in the mix. There's also Horror Express, which is that uh, Spanish co-production that we've we've discussed recently on Weird House that has Telly Savalas, Christopher Lee, uh, Peter Cushing uh, in it. And that does have kind of a skeletal-looking creature in it, though I don't know if there's a scene. I haven't seen it recently. I don't know if there's a scene that completely matches up with this. So 
you might look to those two films. I'm not sure. Uh, of course, with any kind of childhood memory situation, it's possible that you know you have sort of things combined and recombined. Every yeah. time we pull a memory out of the out of the closet, we manipulate it a little bit. So the the memories that stick with us the longest, like this, are actually the ones that we can trust the least. Uh, so it's entirely possible that that monster. No, has has no true predecessor in the cinematic world. Perhaps he is your monster, and therefore we can do nothing to expel it. Sweet dreams, Frederick. <laughs> but I'm going to keep a lookout. I'm going to keep a lookout because okay. I few things are certain in life, except that I'll probably keep watching terrible movies with subway scenes in them. And if I see this creature, I will let you know. Okay, we got to round things out with one last message. This comes from Brian, subject line, Bombadil. The entire message reads, Ian Anderson, why not? <laughs> uh, so Ian Anderson, the uh, the singer and composer of the, what what genre would you call him? Prog rock band, uh, Jethro Tull? Yeah, I think that's where they're generally classified. I'm actually not very well versed in Jethro Tull. I have to admit, I had to look up to see who Ian Anderson was. Uh, because I'm just not familiar with him or his work. Oh, but, you, I, you know, like locomotive breath. You know, you've heard that one, right? Yeah, I mean, I've heard some some Jethro Tull songs. I mean, it's yeah. you know they're they're unavoidable. But I just I don't have a good, you know, have I haven't I haven't done a deep dive on them, and I never listened to them growing up. So I, I just don't have a good feel for for him or his work. But I looked, you know, looking up a picture of him, I'm like, yeah, I could I could see this man as Tom Bombadil. I don't know. I, I want to be open-minded about this, and obviously we know Ian Anderson can can sing. I'm sure he could belt out those Rob Inglis songs. He probably has already done it. I bet I bet uh, Jethro Tull has like recorded Bombadil songs on albums before, because I think they're those kinds of weirdos. <laughs> um, but but I don't know. I don't know if he seems round enough to be like. I feel like Tom Bombadil's got to be uh, got to got to have a rounder, more uh, cherubic energy. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're probably right. All right, well, we'll leave everyone else to, to, to weigh in on this. If not Jethro Tull, then who? Uh, the, the quest for a bombadil continues. Um, you know, uh, uh, there are a lot of great, still a lot of great possibilities out there. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener mail, well, it comes out every Monday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We've got core science episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have uh, an artifact, or for a couple of months, the Monster Fact, ep- publishing on Wednesdays, Weird House Cinema on Fridays, and a Vault episode over the weekend. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.